The next reading is from Mark 8, verses 27 through 38, and you can find it on page 492. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give and in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of, man, Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's really great to be here on this Easter Sunday morning. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Um, this is, you know, this is the Sunday, it's, this is what it's all about. This is why we're here. Um, and usually on a Sunday like this, uh, we preach off of one of the resurrection passages. I, I think it was maybe appropriate when Manny was uncertain whether we were on the right passage or not. <laughs> um, but... The truth is, we have been working specifically to get to this passage for Easter Sunday. We have been preaching for 14 weeks through the Gospel of Mark just so that we could be here on Easter Sunday morning. Um, and the reason is because this passage has everything. The whole book of Mark that we've been studying uh, up till this point has been asking this one question. It's been asking the question, who is Jesus? And if you've been with us over those weeks, you've heard that there's lots of different suggestions. There's some people who have ideas about that, maybe a few people who even seem to, to be on to him a bit. But up until now, it's still been a veiled answer. Nobody knows exactly who Jesus is until this moment. Until this moment in verse 29 when Peter says, you are the Christ. But just as soon as he says it, the disciples start to realize that they have absolutely no idea what that means. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to think about how the disciples who walked alongside of Jesus, we are underneath a gym, if you guys don't know that. <laughs> um, the disciples who walked alongside of Jesus, the disciples who saw everything that he did, could still at this point not be certain of who he was. I think that gives us the opportunity to ask those same questions. No matter how much or how little you've been around the church, I think it's fair to ask the question, do we really know who Jesus is? Do we really know what Christianity is all about? And I think these verses lay out the heart of the Christian faith pretty well. 
If we can get our minds around these verses, if we can get our minds around what Mark is trying to tell us here, honestly, it really could change our lives. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to look at these 11 verses and see three things that make up the core of the gospel message. Three things that make up the core of the gospel message. And those things are the shock of Jesus' true identity, the way to find our identity, and the power that makes it possible. So the shock of Jesus' identity, the way to find our identity, and then the power that makes it possible. So let's talk about Jesus' identity first. This passage, it begins with the guys heading to Caesarea Philippi. And that was a very intentional choice on Jesus' part. This was a town that for generations had been known for its worship of the god Baal. But then, under the Roman Empire, it changed to be a, a, a place that worshipped Pan and kind of all of the gods. And then finally, within the last decade or so, Herod the Great had built a statue there regarding the greatness of the emperor, the lordship of Caesar. So they were worshiping Caesar as God. Now imagine for a second if we all got in the bus today and, and we drove down to Plymouth and we stood next to Plymouth Rock and I said, all right, we're going to talk about where our church plant fits in the history of our city. You would be thinking differently, right? Well, Jesus, he brings them to this place where gods and kings have been worshipped for generations and he asks, who do people say that I am? And so they answer, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. What does that mean, though? Maybe, I don't know, if, you're, if this is your once every year trip to church on Sunday, I want to let you know Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is an official title. Christ is actually the Greek version of a Hebrew word, Messiah, that means anointed one. The Messiah in the Old Testament was this figure that had been prophesied about for generations. It was the one that all of God's people, the people of Israel, had been looking forward to. The one, maybe those, those verses that many of us are familiar with, in Isaiah, where he says, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the government shall rest upon his shoulders. The Messiah was this king who they had all been expecting who would come and who would set everything right, who would make everything back to the way it's supposed to be, who would free the Israelites from their oppressors, and who would bring in this new government and this new reign of righteousness and justice and peace and holiness. And so I can only imagine how Peter felt right here when he says, you are the Christ, and Jesus doesn't deny it. That moment, it was, it was an affirmation of all of his deepest dreams. At that moment, he was figuring out that Jesus was, was the guy who he had been dreaming about coming since he was a child, and here Peter was at his right hand. Here Peter was in his inner circle. I'm sure that he was thrilled. I'm sure he was overcome by the joy of it all. Until Jesus drops the bomb, right? 
And then it says, and immediately, right after that, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The emotional swing here is almost comical, right? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the one that we've all been expecting. You're the one that I've been waiting for. You are the most powerful king the earth has ever seen. And I rebuke you. It doesn't make any sense, right? But I think this is also one of those great signs of why we can trust the scriptures. This is, we've, we've seen this over and over again in Mark, that these are believable accounts, right? If you're going to make up a story about your leaders, you don't want them to look this dumb. But Peter always looks like a fool because this is the way it happened. This is the way it went down. Peter was upset. And here's why. Because what Jesus was saying was horrifying. What Jesus told Peter in that moment was inconceivable. The Messiah can't die. The Messiah is destined for the throne, not the cross. It's kind of hard to get our minds around it, right? We've heard this story now for our entire lives. But I want to try to help you think about the way Mark's readers would have heard this story for the first time. The way they would have seen that it was a complete and utter paradox that these guys would claim that Jesus was the Christ and also that he had been crucified. Crucifixion was like nothing that we have today. Not because of the, the pain or the gore or any of that stuff. It was, it was a death that was shameful. It was a death that the Old Testament said brought a curse upon the person who died that way. It was a death of complete humiliation. It was a death of dehumanization. It was done in public with people mocking you. It was certainly not the death of a king. Think about the way that some of our famous martyrs died. Think about the way famous people die, right? This is not how it happens. This is not Braveheart being stretched out while the crowd is, is waiting for him to, to tell them something, while they're begging for, for mercy for him. No, it says that Jesus tells them he's going to be condemned by the priests. He's going to be condemned by the scribes and the teachers and the religious experts. But not only that, he's going to be abandoned by the whole world. He will die as one man in a group of criminals being executed that day. Fleming Rutledge, uh, she's an Episcopalian theologian, and she, she wrote a book called The Crucifixion, and it says, to speak of the crucifixion is to speak of a slave's death. We might think of the slaves in the American colonies who are killed at the overseers at the whim of, of their owners. No one remembers their names. No one remembers their histories. Their stories were thrown away with their bodies. And he says, this is the destiny chosen by the creator and Lord of the universe. The death of a nobody. 
Like Isaiah says, he was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Of course Peter's shocked. Of course Peter is shocked when Jesus says this is going to happen to him. But maybe what's more shocking is how he says it. He doesn't say it as in it's, he's just telling you what's about to happen. He doesn't say, and here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to, to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. He doesn't say, I will do this. He says, I must do this. He says, the Son of Man must die. And in fact, for Peter to suggest anything different is to voice the very words of Satan himself. This is the strongest rebuke that, that Jesus will ever give his disciples. Get behind me, Satan. But why? Why must Jesus die this way? Well, the thing that's going on here and what will continue in the second half of this book, and we'll look at that next winter, is that Jesus is now starting to show them the plan. That the Christ, the one that they had expected forever, was coming not to deal with temporary needs. He wasn't coming to deal with this temporary oppression by this particular government, but he was coming to deal with eternal needs. He was coming to deal with the eternal needs of an enslaved human race. He had come to break the bondage of sin and to pay the debt that we owed by reconciling us to God. Chad, a few weeks ago when he was preaching, he mentioned this, but, but he pointed out the principle that we all understand, that there can be no forgiveness without a cost. Forgiveness always has a cost, right? When I was uh, in high school, I was hanging out with my buddies, and we were in the driveway, and I wanted to dunk the basketball, but, I mean, look at me. I, I can't dunk a basketball. So, so I decided that the next best thing would be to climb up on the bumper of my mom's car and grab onto the rim. It's pretty much the same, right? And so I'm hanging on the rim, and I realize at that point that, that this basketball hoop had been there for 15 years in the soggy ground, and I pulled it down on top of my mom's car, her, her, her three-week-old car, as a matter of fact. And the dent didn't just dent the, the door or something. It actually dented the frame. I was, I was a big kid. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, my mother chose to forgive me. I didn't have to pay for that very expensive repair. But you know what? When she forgave me, that didn't mean the car was fixed. In order for that to be taken care of, she actually had to bear the cost of what I had done. See, forgiveness always comes with a cost. And it's, of course, the same with God. For God to forgive our sins means that he has to bear the cost himself. And that's what the cross is about. On the cross, this innocent Messiah took on the cost of the world's sin. Because you and I live our lives apart from God, because we live our lives rejecting him and in rebellion against him, Jesus had to be condemned. Jesus had to be condemned for our sins. Rutledge says that he was rendered helpless and powerless. He was stripped of his humanity. He was reduced to the status of a beast. And he was declared unfit for any death other than the death of a slave. 
That's what happened on the cross. The Son of God gave himself to be enslaved by sin, condemned by the law, and subjected to death for you. That's the shocking truth of Jesus' identity. He is the Christ. He is this king who was long prophesied. He is the one who has come to set everything right, to make the world the way it's supposed to be. But he is a king who only can conquer through defeat. He is the king who must be killed. He is the Christ. But the only Christ is Christ crucified. But what we learn as we understand Christ's true identity, when we figure that out, we realize that, that it's only through knowing Christ's identity that we can find our own identity. And that's the second thing I want to talk about this morning. The path to our identity. There's a couple different narratives here. You know, if you want to find out you know, how to find yourself, uh, if you want to ask somebody who they are and, and find out the answer that they give you, there's a few different schools of thought, right? There's a popular narrative out there that says that your identity comes from the things that you gain. Right? If you can just add a few things to yourself, then you'll have an identity. If you can just get that title, maybe doctor you know, or lawyer or, or maybe just Mr. or Mrs., if you can achieve some kind of social status, if you can get that job you've always wanted or, or buy a particular car or a particular house or maybe date a particular person, the world sells us this, this story that your identity is based on what you can gain. Your identity is based on what you can add to yourself. Not too long ago, I was uh, having a conversation with a group of friends from the neighborhood and we were talking about this very thing. It was a mixture of, of people from different faiths and different backgrounds. And, and we were talking about how easy it is to see through that story. How these little additions that we add on to ourselves, how they never really fulfill us for very long. Whether it's something small like getting a new phone or, or something big like getting your dream job or, 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 or retiring or something like that. These things that we look forward to, they never actually fulfill us very long. Now, when we were talking about that idea, we asked the question, how do we get past that? How do we move past this gain-based identity? What would it be like to finally reach that point where you're just secure in yourself? Where you know you don't need anything else? And the answer that this group came up with was, well, they said, well, you know, that's what self-actualization is, right? We need to be self-actualized. We need to look inside of ourselves, and we need to learn to be content. We need to, to learn how to be at rest. And that's another popular idea, right? That the answer to all of our problems lies on the inside. That it's not about something else that we need to get, but it's about something that we need to search in our hearts to find. That if we live long enough, if we learn enough life lessons, then eventually we'll be secure in ourselves. We'll be able to take whatever life throws at us. But Christianity is different. Christianity 
says the exact opposite. And nowhere is it clearer than right here in verse 34. It says, In calling the crowd, Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone, Jesus said to the crowd and the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose, would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Jesus says pretty clearly, you are never going to find yourself from something that you can get on the outside. But also, you will never find yourself from looking inside. He says, on the contrary, the way that you find yourself is by losing yourself. The way that you find your life is by dying and following him. In other words, what Jesus wants to tell us is that there are two crosses in Christianity. There's his cross and there's yours. There's the cross of Christ and then there is the cross that you're called to take up and follow him. Jesus says everyone who follows him must take up the cross. Now, uh, I'm a southerner. I, I try to hide it a lot of the times, but it's true. I am. I'm from the South. And uh, this is something that, that, that in the South, uh, it's a phrase that gets thrown around. I haven't, I haven't heard it as much here, but this idea of, of my cross to bear. You know, we've taken this, this phrase and we've robbed it of a lot of its power. Right? People say, oh, that's just my cross to bear about anything. Right? The pants at Old Navy just don't fit me right. <laughs> it's just my cross to bear. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, I just want to let you know, this was not a metaphor. The cross didn't mean anything other than the cross. Remember that brutal description of what a crucifixion was like? That's what Jesus was saying. He says, the, the call to follow me is a call to come and die. To follow God's desire for your life instead of your own. To follow Jesus into a life that might involve pain. That might involve failure and misery and anonymity and maybe even death. Now, Again, if this is your first time at church in a while, I know what you're thinking. Where do I sign up? That sounds great. <laughs> Christianity sounds wonderful. No, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone respond to this call? Why would you, why would you want to sign up for this if this is the offer that Christ is making? Well, it's because of the promise that's attached, right? He says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And that word life, the Greek word under there is the word psyche. Uh, it could also be translated as soul. But really, I think the best sense of it is it's your whole self. It's what we've been talking about. It's, it's yourself, your being, everything about you. Jesus is saying that that one thing that you're always searching for, finding yourself, is actually out there. That there is a way to find yourself. But you're never going to find it in the places where you normally look. 
He says, you're not going to find yourself through the little things in this world. You're not going to find yourself through that title or through the approval of others or, or through, the, through the respect of your community. Those things can't give you life. In fact, if you really start to pursue anything in this world, what you find out is that it does the opposite. It only takes away life. Do you know what I mean? Say there's something that you really want and you, you finally get it. And then you realize, well, this isn't enough. It may satisfy you for a little while, but eventually it fades. Or, on the other hand, say there's something that you desperately want, desperately need, and you don't get it. What happens? Well, it starts to control you. It starts to fill your life with anxiety and fear. It keeps you awake at night. You find yourself taking advantage of people that you care about to get it. But even then, it, it never fulfills you. It only rules you. You see, folks, Jesus wants us to recognize that the thing our heart is really longing for cannot be found on this earth. It's not hidden deep down inside of you somewhere. What your heart really wants is God himself. Your true identity is that you belong to God. And knowing him, being in relationship with him, is the only way to find yourself. So the invitation of Christ, the invitation of the gospel, in a sense, is give up. Give up on those things. Give up on those things that you know won't satisfy you and will never last. Lose your life so that you can finally find out who you really are. But the last thing we need to talk about this morning is the real question. How can we possibly do this? How can we be so certain that we should make this kind of decision? How can we be certain that, that Christ's promises are true? Well, I think what is hidden in this passage and, and what we're, we're talking about today is, is the power that makes this all possible. There is this power that lets us know that if we do this most radical thing, if we reorient our lives towards Jesus, and if we follow his desires instead of our own, that it will be okay. And that's what this whole Easter thing is all about. See, Jesus in verse 31, um, when Jesus is talking about his fate, he says that he's going to be rejected and he's going to be killed. But then he says, after three days, he will rise again. The resurrection is what he's talking about. This thing that we celebrate today on Easter, the cross, is the hope of our faith. The resurrection is the thing that allows us to focus on the cross. The resurrection is the moment that proved the truth of all the stuff that Christ was saying here. The resurrection was the moment that God showed that Jesus had, in fact, defeated the power of death once and for all. It was the moment 
that proved that the work of salvation had been finished through Christ's work on the cross. The resurrection, when Jesus again had life in his body, was the moment that proved that everyone who looks to him for life would have it. In other words, it's only because of that, only because after three days he rose, that we can actually respond to this call to follow. You see, the resurrection is proof that when Jesus took the cross and died, now we can take the cross and live. And maybe you say, well, I don't know that that happened. I'm not so sure about the resurrection. And I don't blame you, right? Fair enough. The resurrection is a pretty tough thing to, to believe. People don't come back from the dead. It's been several thousand years. Our society is far more advanced scientifically and medically, and still being dead is something you don't recover from. I get it. I get your skepticism. But for today, let me just ask the question, what if it did happen? What if someone did rise from the dead? What if, as Paul wrote just a couple decades later, that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures? That he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, not now, but were then still alive. He said you could go talk to them about it. What if that really happened? What if 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead? Well, here's what we know from history. We know that whatever happened in that moment, whatever happened on that day, all of a sudden, these men who could not fathom that Christ would go to the cross were willing to die proclaiming that message. We know 2,000 years that, later that this moment has forever split history in half. That ever since then, every time you write the date on a piece of paper, people are remembering when Christ came. We know that today... Thousands of years later, there are billions of people on this globe who still claim to have their lives transformed by this resurrected man. People don't rise from the dead. But if they did, I can't show you a video. I, I can't show you what it was like that, that next morning. But you know, what I can show you is, is the church. I can show you this people that have been called by Christ's name who the scripture tells are the, are, are the hands and feet of Jesus. They're the body of Christ. And, and if you doubt, I just invite you to come back next week. Come back again and get to know these people and fellowship with them and relate to them and see this community that Christ himself has built. But even more than that, I... I just want to let the Spirit speak. The Holy Spirit who is living and active in His church and through His Word. And just tell you one more time, here's what all this stuff means. Plain and simple. 
on the cross, Jesus endured this ultimate humiliation and shame. And it wasn't simply because he died. And it wasn't simply because crucifixion is a bad way to go. But it was the ultimate moment of humiliation and shame because in that moment, he was bearing all of the world's guilt and sin. He became sin for you. He died. And on the third day, he rose again. And the invitation now to you, the invitation to us is that all who repent, everyone who repents of of living for the little things in this world, living lives defined by our own self-interests, everyone who repents and turns to him, everyone who chooses to follow him will find life. We will find welcome in the presence of God for all eternity. When we repent and look to Jesus in the same way that Jesus took our sins on the cross, Scripture tells us we get his righteousness. We get his perfect record and his perfect standing before the Lord. And that means our lives are no longer defined by what we do. If we now have Christ's record as our own, our lives are no longer defined by what we do, what we gain, what we amass, the titles that we get, or the goals that we fail to achieve. In fact, it means we're free from them. Those things don't have power over us anymore. What would that be like? What would it be like for you to be able to look at all the good things that you have in your life and to say, your good things but you're not my greatest thing. You're good things, but you don't control me, and if I lose you, I'll be okay. What would it mean to look at the struggles and the hardship and the difficulties in your life and say, this is hard, but this is not the end. This struggle does not control me. This struggle does not have power over me because I am not defined by what's going on in my life. I'm defined by him the resurrected Son of God. His life is my life. Folks, the resurrection, it means that no matter what suffering and hardship God may call you to, whatever it may mean for you to take up that cross and follow Him, you can be certain that there will be resurrection on the other side of it. And so if you long for that kind of freedom, if you long for an identity, to finally know who you are, then come and die. Come to Christ. Come to Christ crucified. Let's pray. Father, we are are grateful for the promises that you give us in your word. Father, we're grateful that, that you've shown us here what it meant for you to save us, And Lord, we can spend our whole lives trying to to mine the depths, to understand what this means. But but at the very least this morning, Lord, I pray that we would hear it. I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear the good news of the gospel. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who may not yet believe that, I pray, God, that you would speak to them. I pray, God, that you would give them the, the courage and the boldness to share where they are with someone else. And Father, I pray for us weak and wounded sinners in this room who have fallen victims to the lies and have been tricked 
into believing things that, that just aren't true. Lord, would you call us back to yourself this morning? Would you take your place as, as the king of our lives? Father, would you define us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.